We're in lesson seven today in our study of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Chronicles. And we've been looking at the kingship of Saul. And in fact, we're going to look at the second part of that kingship that is mentioned in Samuel before we're introduced to David, which will take place next week. Now, I think it's interesting for you and I, if you really think about it, Remember I told you in the beginning, when you talk about biblical narratives, it doesn't tell you every detail. Because for the narrator who is bringing forth that history, that's not what's important. What's important is what's being presented to you. And so as far as from the perspective of the Lord, because all scripture is inspired by the Spirit, What we see is what we need to know because it's moving to a point where we understand why David was selected by the Lord to be king. So we're not going to see all of the details about Saul's kingship. In fact, what is presented actually shows you how Saul really moved away from the Lord. And then the Lord gets to the point where, as we're going to see today, that he regrets setting up Saul as king, and he gets to the place where he says he needs to choose another after his own heart. Now, were there things that Saul did that were good? Yeah, probably, but we don't know that, and that's not the focus of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is showing why Saul was rejected, and then why ultimately David was chosen. So last week we saw that he was king, selected by the people, presented by Samuel, and we also saw that he did his first wrong action in offering a sacrifice rather than being obedient. So we're going to see a little bit more about that today with two incidents. One has to do with a foolish vow that he made, and the other is that he just didn't flat out carry out what God told him to do with the destruction of the Amalekites. So let's look at this together. We're going to look at chapter 14 through chapter 15 today. So let's begin with chapter 14. That's the focus of Saul's foolish vow. Okay? So Jonathan, it tells us in the beginning, Jonathan, which is Saul's son, took his armor bearer. Now, if you're not sure what an armor bearer is, an armor bearer is basically kind of like if you remember like the medieval times, the knights had their squires and the squires served with them and provided whatever they needed for their knights. That's kind of like what an armor bearer is. He carries the weapons of the warrior. And so Jonathan took his armor bearer to the Philistine garrison and did not tell his father. So what we see here is is that Jonathan takes his armor bearer and says, hey, let's go to the Philistines, see what's happening there. And he doesn't tell his father Saul that he is doing this. Saul was located at this time in Gabriel and Benjamin with 600 men and the priest Ahijah, son of Ahiatub. Now, Ahiatub is the high priest, and 
what we see also is that Ahiatub is the son of, are you ready for this, Ichabod. Remember Ichabod, who was born the day that the ark was captured? So this is the grandson, Ahijah is the grandson, and he's serving as a priest with Saul. Jonathan's faith in the Lord guided him as he led his armor bearer to the Philistines. So his faith was guided, was guiding him in his interaction with the Philistines. And so basically he was saying, you know what? Uh, you know what? The Lord is maybe going to be with us today. Maybe the Lord will give us a victory. Let's go over. Okay? So he's letting his faith guide him as he's moving forward. So when we get to this place where they're located here, and I'm going to show you a picture of this place here in a moment, near where the Philistines are, Jonathan proposes a test saying that if the Philistines call them to come up, the victory is theirs. The Lord has given them the victory. But if they don't call us to come up, then we'll just leave. Now, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? So they're in a place, if they're saying, if the Philistines call us to come to them, we know we've got the victory. But if they don't, we'll just go about our way. We know that we don't have to do anything. What's he doing here? He's basically acting on faith. Basically acting on faith. Now, the Philistines called them to come up, and Jonathan said, the Lord has given them victory. This is an amazing story. So the Philistines, they're up on these cliffs, and they're you know, saying down to Jonathan and his armor bearer, hey, come up here, guys. We'll take care of you. Kind of a taunting thing. And Jonathan's attitude is, okay, let's do this. God's given us the victory. Now, to help you to understand what we're talking about as far as the terrain here, I've got a picture I want to show you. So if you take a look at the screen here, this is a picture of the site that we're talking about from the scripture. You can see here that it's a wadi that goes down through there, but it's a very high cliff area. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are in the low area, and the Philistines are on top of these cliffs, okay, are on top of these cliffs. And this is what we're talking about. So when the Philistines are calling down to them, saying, come up here, Jonathan is basically saying, God's given us the victory, so they make the climb up. Now, it's an amazing text. As they're making the climb up, he engages the Philistines, knocks them down. The armor bearer then comes and kills them, and then kills them. So Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 Philistine men in a small field. They killed 20 Philistine men in a small field. Obviously at the top of this cliff was an area that was maybe surrounded by other cliffs, but it was a small field. And in that small field, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 men. 20 men. Now, because of Jonathan's attack. Panic struck the Philistines and an earthquake happened. It's amazing how this thing all happens at the same time, isn't it? Kind of like, wow, what a coincidence. 
Folks, there are no coincidences. God is ultimately the subject of all scripture here. So a panic happens because of the attack. An earthquake happens, and we see that the Philistines are in a disarray. Now, I've got an interesting side note for you about this story. It's very interesting. About a little over 100 years ago, in the same area, in 1918, at the end of World War I, the British were fighting the Ottoman Empire, which was Turkey. And they were entering into this area trying to head north, and the Turks, of course, were up on the cliffs. And so they were trying to devise a plan to attack this area so that they could go further north. That evening before the attack, a young officer was reading chapter 14 from 1 Samuel. And he was struck by the story of Jonathan and his attack on the Philistines and the victory that God gave him. He then took his Bible and went to his commanding officer and they devised a new plan. What they did was is they sent a platoon of British soldiers up over the cliffs. It caught the Turks by surprise, and they routed the Turks because they were panicked because of they thought a huge army had come up over the cliffs. Isn't that amazing that there, several thousand years later, the same thing happens in the same place because they follow the tactic that Jonathan used. I think that's an amazing side note. Although it doesn't have any bearing on what we're talking about here today, it just goes to show you that this was the place where that took place. Now, Saul's watchman saw the panic, and he called a roll call that revealed that Jonathan was missing. So obviously he had like watchmen out observing what's going on with the, with the Philistines on, and, and they're seeing this panic. They're seeing from a distance that the Philistines are in panic, they're in confusion, they're in disarray. And then Saul decides to call a roll call. Alright, let's make sure everybody's here. And when they call the roll call, they find out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. Now, here's what's interesting. I think it's interesting. They're seeing the confusion and the disarray of the Philistines, what's going on. But Saul now decides to do something. He, he's, I think he's thinking he needs to do the spiritual thing. So here's what happens next. Saul told, told Ahijah that to bring the ark but stopped him when the panic grew among the enemy. What's going on here? Well, when he says he's calling for the ark, he's basically saying, hey, bring up the ark from wherever it is. That's going to take time. Remember, it's being stored in a house far away from where they are. Bring up the ark. Maybe he's wanting the presence of God there with him to help him make a decision about whether or not he should go to battle. But as He's commanding him to do this. The confusion and the disarray among the Philistines is only growing greater. They're seeing this. So finally he just says, whoa, whoa, we're not going to do this. Hold on. Don't get the ark. We're going to have to do something else. When really what he should have maybe done was just attack. Okay? Just attack. 
So then Saul and the Israelites went to battle with the Philistines who were in total confusion. In fact, they were in such confusion that the text tells you that they were attacking each other. And so Saul and the Philistines come against him. Remember, he's got 600 men. They come against the Philistines. Now what else happens is the text tells you that all the other Israelites who were hiding in caves and hiding in bushes and everywhere, they came out for the battle, as well as the Hebrews who were taken captive by the Philistines. They then turned on the Philistines themselves, and God gave them a great victory that day. They were beating the Philistines because they were in total disarray because of what was going on. Now, the writer tells the reader that the Lord saved Israel that day. So the writer, the narrator is going to make it very clear here that it was God who brought the victory. God who brought the victory. Remember, he is the main character, folks, of all the scripture, the Lord. Okay? Now, next thing I want you to see is the text then moves to something else that's very interesting, but it's actually very sad if you think about it. The men of Israel were physically distressed as they battled because of a vow placed on them. Now, when you're in the military and you're exerting all this energy and you're fighting and you're running, you're fighting and you're attacking and so forth, you're burning lots of calories. So, therefore, you need food. You need to eat to replenish your energy to be able to battle. And that's what normally happens. And what the normal practice was is, is that as soldiers went in this kind of a setting, they would eat whatever they found to maintain their strength to fight the battle. But now what we see here is that these Israelite soldiers who are fighting this battle that God has given them are physically distressed because of a vow. What kind of a vow, George? Well, basically vows are very important, and the vow was made by King Saul. Saul made the vow not to eat until he had taken vengeance on his enemies. That's a pretty foolish vow. Basically, he placed all of the Israelites under a vow with the penalty of death that no one was to eat. They were to fast while they were fighting until Saul got his victory. He basically proclaimed a fast. Now, that's very foolish. Why? Because I already mentioned to you, when you're talking about exerting great energy in the battle, running, attacking, chasing, you're burning lots of calories. So therefore, you need to take of the spoil as you go. And this is what's going on here. They're not allowed to do that. So they're physically distressed because of this foolish vow from Saul. Foolish vow from Saul. Now, when the army reached a forest, no one would eat the honey because they feared the vow. So they enter into this forest area, and this must have been an amazing forest, because what they're seeing literally is honey literally dripping everywhere. Must have been a really bountiful area for honeybees. 
So there's all of this honey, and you know about honey, it's sugar, carbs, energy. But no one would take of the honey because they feared the vow. They feared that if they took of that honey, they would have to die. They would have to die because they broke the vow. Now, Jonathan, remember, Jonathan wasn't with the troops. He was the one who started the whole thing by attacking the Philistine garrison. Jonathan, not knowing of the vow, ate some honey, and he regained his strength. So he's going along. He's got a staff with him. He sees some honey, dips his staff in, brings it up, eats it, and it says that his countenance increased. Basically, he regained his strength. I mean, he's got a sugar high, I guess, but he's doing good now because of him eating this honey. But remember now, he doesn't know anything about this crazy vow from his father. Yep, but remember how it is. Somebody's always going to tell you, right? Somebody's going to tell you about the vow, especially if you're breaking it. So when told about his father's vow, he stated the victory would be greater if the people ate. I mean, he basically is saying, are you kidding me? My dad made a foolish vow here because how much greater would the victory be over the Philistines if we were able to eat as we fought, as we went? That's what Jonathan is saying here. So after driving the Philistines from Michmash, the people were physically faint. No wonder they're exerting all this energy and they're not able to eat. It's like putting in a full day, not having anything to eat. You ever been like that? And you're sitting at home and you're just ready to collapse because you need food. You're basically drained that's where the people are at here. Okay, that's where the people are at. So here's what happens now. When you defeat people and they run, they leave everything behind. So they basically left everything behind. They left all of their spoils. What do you mean? Well, they left all of their food. They left all of their animals. So the people rushed to take the spoil, slaughtered the animals, and ate meat with blood. Uh-oh. Well, you know, George, when you slaughter an animal, if you're going to cook, yeah, you not don't have enough time to drain the blood, do you? Here's what I'm going to tell you right now. Remember, this is one of their dietary laws. God made it very clear when he gave them the law in the wilderness that they were not allowed to eat meat with blood. They were forbidden. It was well known. Okay? Well known. So Saul was told that the people were sinning against God by eating meat with blood. So finally somebody comes up to Saul and says, Whoa, Saul, we got a sin issue going on here. The people, they're so famished and hungry, they're killing these animals and they're just eating and they're eating meat with blood, and that's a sin against God, Saul. We've got to do something. Got to do something. So Saul called for a stone. Okay? So he called for a stone to be brought to slaughter the animals in one place. Remember, in the Old Testament law, when they were in the wilderness, they weren't just allowed to slaughter animals anywhere. They had to go to one place to do their slaughtering. He's basically bringing that commandment to this place now, telling them, bring a stone here, tell all of them, bring their animals, 
and slaughter them here. Why? Because he wants to make sure that they are slaughtered in the proper way. Proper way. So they're slaughtered in the proper way. He also calls the people not to sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood. So he's like, okay, wait a minute now. You guys, I know you're hungry, but you got to wait. You can't eat the meat with blood. By doing that, you're sinning against the Lord. You're sinning against the Lord. So we see that happening here. He then built an altar to the Lord, which was his first. Now this is, passage will tell you that he builds an altar to the Lord, and it also makes the point of saying at this point in his kingship, this is his first altar that he's built to the Lord. Now you're probably wondering, why is he building an altar to the Lord? Well, remember, there's an implication here. You build an offering to the Lord to make sacrifice to him. What's the number one reason why you make sacrifices to the Lord? It's because of your sin. Saul's building an altar to the Lord to make a sacrifice to the Lord because the people have sinned against him by eating meat with blood. So here's his first altar. Here's his first altar. Now, it then tells us that Saul, okay, victory's not enough here, he wants more. Saul sought guidance from the Lord concerning whether to press the attack against the enemy. He's basically saying, okay, let's go check with the Lord now to see if we should just keep on going and rid us of this enemy. Let's, let's see what the Lord says we should do. So he's seeking guidance from the Lord. But here's the interesting thing. The Lord did not answer him. The Lord did not answer, and it was surmised that someone had broken the vow. Now, isn't this interesting? It doesn't say exactly why the Lord didn't answer, but the narrator is telling you that the people, because the Lord didn't answer, the people are assuming it's because somebody broke the vow. Somebody broke the vow. So we got to figure out who the somebody is. Okay? Somebody is. And when we find him, it's kind of like Achan and his sin. Remember when they were told to destroy Jericho? He took some things. You know, we've got to find what the sin is because that's hindering all of Israel here. When in reality, it might be that Israel is hindered not because of the one who broke the vow, but because of the one who made the vow. Okay? Because maybe it's the one who made the vow. So Saul proclaimed that one who had broke the vow would be killed and the lots were cast. What do you mean the lots were cast? Well, they got all Israel there, all the men. They're casting a lot between he and Jonathan and all Israel. Lots were the method by which they determined the will of God. In the first lot, the people were vindicated. The lot didn't fall on the people, so we don't need to figure out which tribe, which clan, which family, which guy. The lot fell on Saul and Jonathan. They were selected in this first drawing, in this first casting of the lots. The lots, of course, were then cast again and Jonathan was selected. So Saul confronted Jonathan when he was selected by Lot, and he confessed to eating honey. 
When they cast between Jonathan and Saul, the lot falls on, on, on Jonathan. Saul's like, hey, what did you do, boy? Come on now, tell me what you did. And he said, hey, I ate some honey. I didn't know about your vow. I ate some honey. Do I die today because I ate some honey? But And this is the craziness of Saul. Saul proclaimed Jonathan's death sentence. He's like, you're going to die today because you broke this vow. Part of it is, that I think, that's going on here. Saul's got to show that he's the king and he can't bend with what he's saying. But thankfully, and the people intervened to rescue him. What do you mean? Probably the people as a crowd, mainly the elders with the people behind them, intervened and said, whoa, you're not going to kill the guy who gave us the victory today. It was because of Jonathan and his actions that we had the victory. You're not going to kill him. I'm assuming probably somebody said that was a stupid vow too. But they probably didn't say it out loud because it was the king. So they rescued Jonathan. And then the story ends. It says that Saul then went back to, to, to Galbia, and that's the end of the story. Saul halted his assault and the Philistine, on the Philistines, and they returned to their own territory. The Philistines returned to their own territory. Remember, they were only up in Michmash because of their victory before, and they stationed a garrison there to raid against Israel. But now that garrison has ended. They go back to their own areas, which is where? In Gaza and Ekron, and they return to their own areas. Now, it's interesting, at the end of chapter 14, the writer wants to devote a few verses to talking about Saul's reign, his kingship, okay? So the writer states that Saul established his kingdom and fought against his enemies. And so he lists all of the enemies that he fought against. The Philistines, he fought against Ammon and Moab, Edom, he fought against all of his enemies. The writer then lists the three sons of Saul, and that Saul also had two daughters. So we're given a list, and the youngest daughter was a daughter by the name of Michal. Michal. And she'll be uh, very important later on as we move through 1 Samuel. As we move through 1 Samuel. Saul's wife is identified but it also tells us, and we're going to see this happen as well when we hear about David, it's going to tell you who the commander of the army is. So Saul's wife was identified as well as the commander of the army, his uncle Abner. So a fellow by the name of Abner is the commander of the Israeli army, but he also happens to be Saul's uncle. Isn't that amazing? In fact, I was thinking about it when I was studying this passage. I thought it's very interesting. Remember when Saul returned from being with Samuel and he was given the prophecy and anointed that he would be king? Remember when he got home, he was met by an unnamed uncle who asked him, what did Samuel say to you? Makes you kind of wonder if that unnamed uncle in that prior chapter was Abner. Because Abner now is the commander of the army. Well, that's chapter 14. Now we get to chapter 15, 
And we're going to see another act of disobedience on Saul. And this one is the final straw with the Lord. Another act of disobedience. So before we finish, let's just kind of say here, there was continual war between the Philistines and Saul that took, as he took every male into the army. Now, when we come to chapter 15, it begins with some instructions to Saul from Samuel. Because remember now, Samuel is the prophet, so he's bringing to Saul what the Lord is saying. So Samuel told Saul to utterly destroy Amalek for their attack on Israel in the wilderness. All right, so what we're seeing here is God is telling Saul it's time to punish Amalek for what they did to Israel when they wandered through the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. And the punishment that God is bringing upon Amalek is that they will be utterly destroyed. They will be wiped out as a people. So Saul had was to destroy everything that Amalek had. He was to destroy everything. Men, women, and children, all animals, burn their buildings, destroy everything. You can't take anything. Everything is to be destroyed. Kind of like the attack on Jericho. Remember the attack on Jericho? There was a ban placed on Jericho that basically said everything was to be destroyed. Same type of command that is being placed here on Amalek for Saul to do. Now, the text then goes on. You can read the story yourself. Saul defeated Amalek, but he took Agag, their king, and the best of their spoil. Oh. So he does everything else, but he takes the king alive and the best of their spoil, the best of their animals. The people were put to the sword and everything that was worthless was destroyed. And I think it's interesting. When you read the text, it tells you everything that was worthless, meaning everything that was good was kept. Okay? Everything that was good was kept. But there's a problem there, isn't it? What did God tell them to do? Destroy everything and kill everyone. But he kept King Agag alive. The Lord, it moves then back to Samuel, and the Lord came to Samuel and expressed his regret in setting up Saul as king. So the Lord comes to Samuel, whether in a dream, whether in a vision, it doesn't tell us how, but he comes to Samuel and says to him, I, I regret that I made Saul king. I regret that. The Lord stated that Saul had turned from following him and was disobedient. So basically he's saying, you know what, he's not doing what I'm asking him to do. He's doing his own thing. He's being disobedient to me, the Lord. This grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all evening. So this bothered Samuel so much that he spent the rest of the evening basically praying and I believe, I can say, think that maybe he was praying for Saul and for Israel because this is a problem. So this is a problem. 
Samuel rose early the next day to meet Saul and was told where to find him. And what you're going to see is, is that he's told that Samuel, excuse me, Saul went to Carmel, Mount Carmel in the north, to set up a monument to himself and then to Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal is where Israel would meet together. But I think it's interesting, the text is telling you, who does Saul think got the victory? Saul. Why do you say that, George? Why would you set up a monument for yourself? Unless you think you're something special. Remember, this is a big difference from when Saul won his first victory and the people were proclaiming him as the victor and he said, no, no, it's the Lord who gave us the victory. Now Saul believes that he's the one who gained the victory. But we know the story, right? If anything, the victory was smaller because of his crazy vow. The victory happened because a man of faith stepped out, his son Jonathan, and God gave the victory. But it tells us that Samuel, as he's looking for Saul, hears that Saul went to Mount Carmel, set up a monument for himself, and now he's gone down to Gilgal. And of course, Samuel's going to head to Gilgal. When Saul greeted Samuel, he stated that he had performed the commandment of the Lord. Wow. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying that, hey, Sam, I did everything God told me to do. Now, you and I know that he didn't. But let's not give Saul a hard time. Saul's just like you and I. What do you mean, George? Partial obedience awfully, often to us, we assume, is total obedience. So if we're told to do five things, and we do four of them, and we forget to do five of them, we would say, we've done everything we were told to do. We've done four of the five. We've done everything, even though we didn't do one. This is the point. Saul thinks he's been obedient, completely obedient, because he's done everything he was told to do. He killed all of the, Am the Amalekite people who were there. He killed all, he destroyed all their worthless stuff. Now, he did keep the good stuff, and he did keep King Ahab alive, but he's been faithful. He's been obedient. This is this whole thing about partial obedience. We think that with God, that's acceptable, but we're going to see here that that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. So Samuel, it's, it's a moment of sarcasm. You have to read the text. In the moment of sarcasm, Samuel questioned the sound of animals that he was hearing. You can almost see Samuel saying, okay, so you, you've done everything God told you to do, then why am I hearing animals? What's the sound of animals that I'm hearing? It's kind of like, hello, Saul, are you sure you did everything? Because if that's true, what am I hearing and seeing? What am I hearing and seeing? Now, Saul offered an excuse. Remember, Saul's good at making excuses, okay? By the way, so are we. Saul's good at making excuses, so he offered the excuse that they were for sacrifice 
for the Lord. He's going to make that point twice in this passage in chapter 15. The people got those animals to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now here's the problem. The sacrifice to the Lord was carrying out his commandment and killing all those things at that time. Those things were already considered holy to God because they were supposed to carry out his commandment. They should have done that rather than thinking, oh, we'll go and have a, a formal service later with these animals. Samuel then questioned why Saul did not obey the Lord and take the spoils. So he's like, okay, wait a minute now. If these are for sacrifice, why didn't you just obey the Lord? Why did you take the spoil? Why did you rush to take their good stuff? Why did you rush to take their good stuff? So Saul again stated that he was obedient, and now he reveals the other problem, than that he had taken Agag, King Agag, captive. Okay? So, again, it's stated that, I'm, I've been obedient to the Lord, and here's the king. Again, like that's supposed to show that he was obedient, but the problem is obedience means everybody was supposed to die, including that king, but Saul kept that king alive. He stated that the people took the spoils to sacrifice to the Lord. Again, he's shifting the blame. It's the people, the people, the people. Let's just remind ourselves of something. Remember we just saw in the last chapter when Saul tells the people to do something, guess what? They do it, right? And they're afraid when they don't do it. What does this mean here except that Saul let them take the stuff? He let them take the stuff. So here's where the famous passage is uttered, okay? And I'll read it to you. It's from, from uh, chapter 15. And here's what it says. Verse 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Wow, what a powerful statement. So Samuel proclaimed that obedience is better than sacrifice to the Lord. Wow. You can see that point throughout the scripture that what is more important to God is you being obedient to him with the things that he tells you to do than all your religious service. And we see that illustrated here in this narrative passage in chapter 15. But that's not all what Samuel said. Samuel also stated that because he rejected the word of the Lord, he was rejected as king. Whoa. You got to hand it for Samuel for being bold. I mean, he's obviously pretty bold to tell Saul this, and he's telling Saul, you know what? Because you were disobedient, you're not going to be king anymore. You've been rejected. God rejects you as king. So then Saul confessed that he had sinned because of fearing the people. I've sinned against the Lord, but there's always that word, but it was because I was afraid of the people. 
Isn't that ironic when we just saw in the chapter before that the people were afraid of who, folks? Saul. They were afraid of Saul. But here's Saul saying, I sinned, but it was because I feared the people. He asked Samuel then to pardon him and to return with him to worship the Lord. Now remember, they're wanting to make a sacrifice of these animals to the Lord, and he wants Samuel to go with him to the sacrifice. There's a lot of reasons why he would do that. It would be basically a confirmation of who he is by having the prophet with him, but Samuel is telling him no. Samuel refused, and as he turned away, Saul tore Samuel's garment. So he's turning away, Saul grabs a hold of his garment, and as he's turning away, he rips the garment. He tears a piece of the garment that uh, Samuel is wearing off. And then Samuel's got something more to say to him, another prophecy. Samuel then stated that just as he tore the garment, Israel will be torn from him. The kingdom will be taken away from him. Wow. The kingdom will be taken away from him. And the kingdom will now be given to another who is better than Saul. The kingdom will now be given to another person, another man, who is better than Saul. Again, Saul confesses his sin again and pleaded that Samuel return with him. Again, it's, it's all about the appearance thing. It's got, Sam, you've got to come with me. You've got to come with me so that the elders see that you're with me. But the reality is, it's already been known now to Saul that his kingship is over. Not completely over yet but that his kingdom is going to be given to somebody else. <clears throat> when they go to the, as you continue on in the passage, this is a very important thing that we're going to focus on here for a moment. <clears throat> when you continue on in the passage, obviously they're at the sacrifice. While they're at the sacrifice, Samuel then called for Agag to be brought, and he executed the king of the Amalekites. Whoa. Samuel himself says, bring that king here. King Agag comes. He thinks the fear of death is gone. But what ends up happening is there's this old prophet who grabs a sword and executes him in the name of the Lord, fulfilling the commandment of God. Now, why did I say this is important? Well, there are some people who feel that there is a connection between this incident and the story of Esther. And that is because when you go to the story of Esther, you are introduced to a man by the name of Haman, who is called the Agagite. And the problem is, is that they will then say, and this is even true today, that this guy was a descendant of King Agag, and the only reason that he was persecuting Israel is because Saul didn't fulfill his vow. Now, here's the problem. The problem is that incident was several hundred years later. And the other problem is the guy that was executed was a Persian from a province called Agag. He's not a descendant of Agag. So I just need to make that point to you so that you don't feel that there is a connection between those two narratives 
Especially we'll make that point again when we get to the study concerning Esther. Now the text then goes and tells us at the end of chapter 15 that Samuel returned to Ramah and he did not see Saul again until his death. He did not go up to see Saul again until his death. Why? There's no message from the Lord for Saul anymore, from Samuel. That's the important thing that I want you to see. And Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord, again, it says this very clearly, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. That, my friends, is the end of chapter 15. And that sets up what begins to happen now in chapter 16. But also next week, when we get into chapter 16, we're going to cover very quickly the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, because all of that is to set up this whole issue of about David becoming king. And next week, we're going to see that he is the one that the Lord selects, and Samuel anoints him.